Hey folks, in case you missed it, the single barrels have started rolling in. Both barrels of the Jack Daniels Single Barrel Barrel Proof Rye are available through Hudson Wine Market, with direct links in my social media pages and Instagram bio. These also went out to patrons with a special discount code. These barrels have been going so quickly that honestly, I don't even know if they're going to be any left by the time this is posted. So if they are available and you want them, trust me, don't wait because someone else is going to grab them first. Next up is the Barrel Rye finished in Armagnac casks. This is going live on October 2nd. This incredible pick was done in partnership with the guys at This Is My Bourbon Podcast. The Timbip guys are great friends, and I'm thrilled to have this barrel come into the shop. On October 2nd, Patreon members of both podcasts will have first dibs with free shipping for Patreon supporters. No limits, no minimums, free shipping for Patreon supporters. So up your Patreon pledge now if you want to grab them before everyone else and get that free shipping code. Just want to take a quick second. Thank you so much. From the bottom of my heart, thank you to all the supporters, especially my friends on Patreon. You've put a ton of investment into the pod and the site through the years. And as these single barrels start rolling out and additional products start rolling out, I'll keep providing as many perks as possible to those who have supported me along the way and continue to join. If you're not a patron, if I was on the outside, sounds like now's the time to join. All right, enough updates. Now on to a new episode of the Whiskey Ring Podcast. Hello, everyone. Welcome to a new episode of the Whiskey Ring Podcast. Today, we're going uh, back to a topic we've taken a few weeks off from now, but that I really wanted to revisit, particularly with these two people. So I'm thrilled to have on Laura Fields. You may know her from the Delaware Valley Fields Foundation, which we will certainly be talking about later on as well. Uh, also, American whiskey, whiskey History. There we go. On I swear, <laughs> I haven't had anything today. American Whiskey History <laughs> on uh, Facebook and other... Uh, interviews and publications and i feel like i'm forgetting something but just an overall ambassador for heirloom grains and for rose and rye as well so first off i wanted to welcome laura um, <laughs> thanks <laughs> um i'll welcome bob on when he comes back when on. He... yeah okay <laughs> sounds good being a being that my day job is actually a nonprofit fundraiser. This is my side gig, and I just look, do it for the thrill of the game, if you will, and learning right. more. Um, I'm curious about the the Delaware Valley Field Foundation and how that came to be, and and uh, how, um, it, how it operates. Yeah, I mean, the Delaware Valley Fields Foundation um, was born around 2015. Um, yeah, 2015. Um, I had worked with my mother's nonprofit a little bit um, here and there, not, you know, kind of watching from the sidelines. Uh, she has an educational center on her farm and, um, you know, she'd have a lot of kids come out, busloads of kids come out to, you know, spend time on her farm and look at all the animals and learn. And I was noticing that the parents were just completely uninterested, <laughs> you know, the teachers and the parents, the adults, um, they were just off in la la land not paying attention and i feel like for me i wanted to reach the adults and um have them understand more about farming and the whole process um where i grew up the farms were all disappearing so quickly with all these strip malls and housing developments coming in um just wiping out all of this gorgeous farmland and i knew that the biggest user of farmland were grain producers 
um, you know, when you're thinking about large acreage, those are the folks that you're talking about, you know, animal husbandry doesn't, you know, uh, raising chickens and stuff like that. It doesn't take as much land. Um, but when you're growing grain, you do need a lot. And so I figured the best way to save um, farmland in Pennsylvania, at least, uh, was to go that route. And of course, my love for whiskey dovetailed there because whiskey's made from grain. And I saw this, you know, I kind of had this epiphany. <laughs> it's like, this is the way that my nonprofit's going to go. This is what I'm going to do when I break off and start my own nonprofit. It's I'm going to focus on grain production, but I'm also going to focus on um, soil sustainability. And, you know, rye plays beautifully into that. So getting the attention of the adults, going back to that again, um, the best way for me to reach them, I found, was actually with whiskey. Because you mentioned whiskey and ears perk up. Um, when you mention rye, <laughs> they don't think of grain in the field. They think of whiskey in their glass. So, you know, I just figured it was a good play. You know, I'll, I'll uh, bring people in with the whiskey. And while they're there, I'll gorilla educate them <laughs> about grain and farming and, you know, sustainability and all those things that I want to educate people about. So that's where that, that's where the Delaware Valley Fields Foundation was born and fields, obviously the play on my last name. <laughs> so it's a nice coincidence. It always helps. Yeah, it does. <laughs> and I also want to welcome on uh, Mr. Robert McDonald. We'll go by Bob usually, but Bob, yeah. Yeah. So uh, Bob McDonald. Um, you have probably, or you should be following Dancing Star Farms uh, on all the social media. There will be links in the show notes for sure uh, to see just the amazing grains and products that he's putting out, sometimes literally in his hands to see what's coming out of the ground. And especially as we're going into the harvesting season, there have been some just beautiful pictures on there. And I really can't describe it as any other way than beautiful uh, crops coming out. So the way that I also wanted to start off this conversation is I got to know kind of both of you through the Rosen project. Right. Um, so, right. you know, stolen wolf mammoth, uh, those guys all working with this Rosen rye and a, this is kind of a question that might seem really, might be a really dumb question, but I had to ask it anyway, which is, um, are there any differences between rose and rye and keystone rose and rye as a uh, other than the pennsylvania geography um right now not i mean you have to understand the whole purpose of the seed spark project and the whole you know point behind all the work that we're doing is to um, maintain the integrity of rosen in pennsylvania and have all of the work that we're doing benefit pennsylvania farmers so Naming it Keystone Rosen anchors that concept to the grain itself. And yes, it all came from seed stock um, that now is only about, um, I think, what are we on our ninth season now, I believe, Bob? Um, I, not Bob. I mean, Bob has been working with us um, with the Seeds Bar Project for four uh, years now. Um, five years? Five years now, right? Because we're getting into the yeah. next planting season. Absolutely. So Bob's been with the project for five years, um, but we've been working on it for, um, let's see, eight, 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 going on nine. And, um, you know, anchoring that concept of Pennsylvania farming to the grain itself was important. 
And that's kind of where that went. Um, as far as the actual seed itself, in time, it will change and it will become different depending on where it's grown. I mean, that's just the nature of seed. Um, it will adapt to its environment and change. So the grain that is grown in Pennsylvania will be different than the grain that's um, grown in other states uh, and in different climates. And, you know, we're showing that with the project itself, the different locations around Pennsylvania, the, <laughs> the immense number of microclimates in our state alone, um, we're going to start seeing some differences in this grain, size of the grain. I don't know, Bob, what are some things that you notice with the Actually, I think the grain's getting bigger. Yeah, it, I think it, it might. It, it's uh, getting used to the soil conditions and. Yeah, those limestone, um, that dolomite limestone soil that just, you know, the seeds love it and the, the grain loves it. it. Grows beautifully. And I'm, you got your back, Bob? Yeah, I'm here. <laughs> so. Uh, when talking with uh, Ari from Mammoth and obviously they've got South Manitou Island mm -hmm. uh, up in Michigan. And uh, they, besides the history of the Island itself and its connection, they also have an advantage there because rye is a pretty promiscuous grain and yes. Rosen's even more so on the spectrum of rye. Now, uh, just as a reminder for the listeners, the, they put it on South Manitou because the winds then just take all the seeds from anything in the air, let's say from the island onto the mainland, but not back. So it's not really cross pollination. Right. So in that way, you, you maintain a, a purity of the seed stock on the island that you can then draw from whenever you need to, to proliferate. Now, being in Pennsylvania and obviously not an island, multiple different places, you don't necessarily have that isolation in the same way. So um, I'd love to hear from your perspectives how you manage to you know keep the grain let's say keep the grain pure in a certain right. way um and just manage whatever cross pollination might occur well let's be clear about something that that um you're absolutely right about the cross pollination issues but manitou island um has its connection historically uh to rosen because of its isolation because at the time early 1900s the um, rye growers across America were prolific. There were rye growers in all the, you know, as many states as could grow rye were growing it. And it was being used by these large distilleries that required large amounts of rye grain. Um, today, not so much. <laughs> there are not a lot of people growing rye for harvest. It is very, really, I mean, finding people that are willing to grow rye, that know anything about growing rye is very few and far between. When you do see rye growing in the ground, it's usually being used as a cover crop. Um, so the risk of pollination or cross-pollination is actually quite low. Um, that doesn't mean that we're not absolutely, you know, panicked about the possibility. It's also why Bob is the farmer that um, we chose to head, you know, the seed stock portion of uh, the project because he is so isolated. He knows all his neighbors. He knows, um, you know, miles around there's no one growing any other crops other than what bob is growing and um you know he has control over that he also works with his neighbors who grow rosen with us as well so if they're cross-pollinating it's only with itself um so 
that's not going to be the case going forward in the years to come. There's always going to be someone who, you know, forgot to cut his grain back, you know, <laughs> um, how do I explain this? If, if someone is growing a cover crop, say, and um, they let it go to where it flowers and pollinates, which is usually never the case, usually that's going to be cut and another crop is going to be planted into it before it ever gets to that point. But mm -hmm. if they miss planting season or something, you know, there's going to be some hiccups, but never at Bob's place. So he's always going to maintain the seed stock. Whereas other places where there could be a possibility of cross pollination, even if that happens, they can always come back to Bob and say, I need to buy fresh seed stock from you again. Now that's not ideal. Obviously we want people to be creating their own variations um, and uh, land race varietals of this grain going forward so that we can look at terroir, which is going to be fun, um, and all the different avenues that this grain can take. But we are very meticulous about making sure that the seed stock portion of this project is safe and there's no risk of cross-pollination whatsoever. And we've been that way since the very beginning um, when we first started planting. You know, those tiny little plots were the most integral um, part of not allowing cross-contamination. If you had cross-contamination in those first couple um, seasons of trying to proliferate this grain, that would have been a bad thing. So we were very meticulous about it. And uh, yeah, that's where we're at now. And uh, Bob, from your perspective as as the farmer, as the person who's the keeper of the seeds, if you will, uh, the I'm curious for your perspective, you know, what, take us back to, let's say, four or five years ago when your approach to say, hey, we have this Rosen Rye project, this Keystone Rosen Rye, we want someone to be the farmer who holds the, key, the, the stock for us. What was that like and what was that conversation like? Kind of, actually kind of nice to get involved in it. I had been growing heirloom um, corn before. And it was basically, you know, one step further than the, the corn, which worked good in my rotation. And it, uh, Laura's always been fun to work with. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> and you said you were already growing corn. I mean, today you've got 12, 12 uh, heirloom yeah. corn varietals? Yeah, 12 different varieties of heirloom corn. So, and uh, there are pictures online too. We'll link to those as well because it's just again, it's just very pretty to see. As opposed, let alone the flavor and all the things that go along with it. Um, but uh, so we know that rye can be a good cover crop. It can be a good, an excellent nitrogen fixer for the soil, help regenerate the soil. Um, but at the same time, from an economic standpoint, it's not necessarily the most preferred grain, especially when you know, it's going to distilleries, you know, you, you don't know what the, what the yield is going to be, what the distilleries are going to be. So um, was there any hesitation on your part on taking on that kind of risk, if you will? You mean for no, Bob or really. for, no. Oh, for, for Bob. I, yeah. I, no, not really, because my philosophy on everything is, you know, if you don't grow it, you can't sell it. You know, if, if you know, if you don't produce it, you know, nobody will know about it. And it, it's like the old uh, baseball game. If you build it, they will come. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so the, uh, the field of dreams with the baseball. 
uh, you have it on your on your website that you're now like a stated goal is to make rosen rye at a sustainable volume for distillation going into the future. Um, what kind of volume is that looking like? Um, let's say let's say right now, of course. <laughs> yes. Well, um, we everything with this project is um the ultimate goal is all for the benefit of the farmers, right? So farmers don't benefit if they have grain they can't sell. So we, as we move forward, really take our time um, to make sure that every ounce of grain that's grown has a home, um, that it's not going to be sitting in a bin somewhere and, you know, going bad. Um, so each year we only grow as much grain as is going to be sold. Uh, and as much grain as we need to go back into the ground. Um, that's just to protect ourselves now until we form enough relationships uh, with distilleries who want to use Rosen as their core product base. So the sooner we can establish those you know, relationships with distilleries that want to make core product out of Rosen rye, the sooner we'll be able to begin proliferating this and, and, and really growing a lot more. But as of right now, each farmer needs to feel comfortable knowing that, you know, this is profitable and not a waste of their time. Because I've seen this happen way too many times with other distilleries and partnerships with farmers where, you know, one, they don't know how to communicate with one another, um, mm -hmm. which is kind of where I come in. I speak distiller and I speak farmer so I can help them, you know, navigate that difficult relationship. And, um, you know, two, they don't know what's going to happen like they don't they don't understand you know you don't just throw grain in the ground and hope for the best you have yeah. to understand all of the you know intricate parts of that harvest you know uh, do you understand the combine do you understand how that works do you understand timing do you know you know what's your schedule for your distilling um how fast do you move through grain you know how does this grain respond in your mash bill all of those things it's a slow process <laughs> to kind of figure out, is this grain going to work for you? Is this something you want? But I can guarantee to you every single person that has touched this grain and every single person who's distilled it was blown away by it. And there's a reason that this grain was as popular as it was with distillers back in the day. Um, I didn't know that until I tasted it. <laughs> but let me tell you, <laughs> the flash of just oh, relief that came from tasting it and realizing how absolutely delicious this stuff was makes it all worthwhile. So. I've been fortunate. Uh, I mentioned it before on the podcast, but I'm fortunate to try the straight off the still uh, Rosen from stolen wolf and from oh, yeah. mammoth. Um, I didn't get the right off the still from Liberty pole, but you know, pretty close. So I've had it from, you know, now from multiple different distillers, let's say, and different, states different microclimates as you were alluding to before um i know this as part of this project uh, from both you you both and from ari and others you're trying to proliferate rosen as something that can be grown in multiple areas as you were saying before basically anywhere where you can grow rye it's mm -hmm. something that could be tried um you also gave it to different distillers to see how it would manifest mm -hmm in different areas and i'm curious uh, as you've gotten more partners on and brought more distilleries online um have there been any where it just either it didn't work for some reason for their profile or uh there was some 
unnamed issue, let's say that led them to say, you know, uh, we, we liked or didn't like the Rosen, but we're going to go with the commodity rye instead or a different varietal. <laughs> no, <laughs> no, okay. no, every single person that's touched it has been like, uh, yes, please. Thank you. <laughs> I mean, the only issue, um, that I can think of, uh, might be the fact that it's more expensive. Um, <laughs> so some people, you know, at first, you know, they have, to, they have to think about the finances of, of all of this. Like what's, what does it look like financially for them? Um, and you know, I, that's all I can think of though, because <laughs> once they taste it, they're like, ah, all right, we'll spend the extra money. This is better stuff. When you're trying to differentiate yourself in a, you know, big world of distillers, it helps to have whiskey that's better than everybody else's. <laughs> Very true. <laughs> and we're seeing, this is a great, uh, segue into the next question, which is, you know, we're seeing more exploration of rye and that goes for Rosen, but also other varietals like um, you know, Danko, Wheeler, uh, there's one up in, that's being used up in Rochester that by black button that is escaping my head at the moment. Um, but all these different types that are being mm -hmm. revived, um, or ones that were just in low use, but being brought more to the fore as a, right. a whiskey flavor. I think it's more the latter. Yeah. Yeah. So in that way, perhaps more than any other grain, rye has been seeing this renaissance of people paying attention to it and looking at it and saying it's not all, let's say, MGP, nothing against MGP, of course, but um, it's not all that Indiana 95.5 or any other recipe. There's a lot of variety in this grain. And it's ahead of other grains used to make whiskey in that way. And we're starting to see some of that work being done in in corn varieties different barley types uh barley i would say more so in like ireland and scotland than the us but you know also wheat here but of the of those grains or even one i haven't mentioned what do you think is the the next grain that kind of takes that leap that people are really paying attention to the variety that's in their whiskey oh man the corn <laughs> i mean mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, I mean, rye is, I mean, I'm so biased. I apologize, but rye is just better than everything else. It, it is. It tastes better. It makes better whiskey. However, um, you know, people, you say the word bourbon and everybody's ears perk up now. It's, you know, the hyped, you know, American whiskey of the moment. Um, and so, you know, people want bourbon, but they taste a bourbon made with one of Bob's corns. And they're like, what is this? This doesn't taste like bourbon. This tastes like something completely different. And that makes perfect sense because if you're using commodity grain to make whiskey, it's never going to be the best that that whiskey could be. And you start seeing a lot of small distillers. And I, I know you're aware of all of these interesting distilleries that are making all of this interesting bourbon using interesting corn. And it, it blows the other stuff out of the water. I mean, it's different which is the thing that most people first shy away from. They taste it and it's so flavorful and there's so much nuance to it that it's almost kind of like too much for them. You know, they taste it and they're just like, oh, there's too much flavor in my whiskey. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? And I feel with corn, it's so interesting because there's, you know, Bob can tell you all the different colors of corn all present different flavor profiles in the whiskey that's made from them. Um, you know, those anthrocyanins and um 
all these like flavor compounds that you end up pulling out of this distillate. It's really, truly amazing. I mean, you want to talk to corn, he's your man. So. <laughs> well, I want to, of course, shout out a couple or at least one of our uh, mutual friends, Spirits of French Lick, Alan Bishop. Oh, yeah. Um, so not only have you both been on Distillers Talk with him, but Bob, you're also growing the Amanda Palmer corn for him. Right. Uh, which uh, my patrons and, and friends of mine will have had at least in the Hindustan Falls release from him, but uh, probably in future releases as well. I know he bred that uh, himself and is really in love with it. So it's great to see it being grown and used. And uh, he, he bred so, that too long of a season to learn. <laughs> <laughs> He's, it, it's hard uh, to grow in my area. It, it barely finishes for me. Is it a uh, too? What what's the, it, um, the difficulty on it? He's got a, a white corn involved in it that's probably like a hundred and twenty or thirty day corn, and it, it's really hard to mature in my climate here. Yeah, so right. just the so basically the, the growing season is not long enough yeah. for the right conditions. Yeah, and fascinating. And is an let me rephrase that question then. Given the difficulty with growing the corn, of course, it's it's an experience to grow it for him. Um, have you suggested, you know, we love doing it for you, but it might be better in a different climate? Or is part of you also saying, no, we want to hold on to that ourselves? It's a challenge, but, you know, I enjoy it. Fair enough. And I mean, like I said, you got 12 varietals to work with. And uh, there are, I'm just looking at the list now of different distilleries that are fed by Dancing Star Farms. We've got, in addition to French Lick, Widow Jane, Sugar Works, uh, Phoebes, which is a new one for me. I hadn't heard of them before. Uh, Pennsylvania Distilling, Barrel 21. These are all distilleries that, while they might be, not be the the kind of names that immediately come to mind for kind of the everyday consumer, let's say. Um, again, no yeah. no uh, offense meant on that. It's, there are there's a small percentage of us nerds who really get into these things, but um, <laughs> you know, it for people who are really interested. I mean, you're looking at places as varied as New York, as a couple in Pennsylvania, but also Ohio, Southern Indiana, Delaware, uh, mm -hmm. Florida, even all getting Florida. grain yeah. from a farm in Pennsylvania that's fairly isolated. Somebody from Europe asked for something from you too, Bob. Oh yeah. Um, I'm also been sending corn to, um, Big Creek Distillery in Georgia. Okay. So, mm. so you've, you've become kind of a, a, um, corn celebrity or a grain celebrity, I should say then. I had a customer out in the state of Washington contact me for a bloody butcher here a few weeks ago. Mm. So he goes coast to coast. Yeah. So I have to ask, uh, Bob, are you much of a whiskey fan yourself? Yeah, I, I I never was before I started this, but when I started, <laughs> Interesting. Okay. When I started growing it, I always wanted to taste, you know, what I grew. Yeah. And we actually we sent a some rye out uh, a few days ago, and here in a couple of days I'll get to taste that. That's pretty cool. Yeah, that's exciting. Yeah, yeah. and uh, to me it brings a a great question that. 
really, again, I, I love both, both of your input on this. So Laura, you said one of your roles is to communicate or act as a communicator between farmers and distillers because hmm. they don't necessarily speak each other's languages. You got, I think I can say just from my own podcast, I've only had two farmers or farmers adjacent on previously. And we're in the one tens of episodes now. So we're starting to get up there. And, um, but really it's only been basically the guys at Mammoth and also um, Ashley and Colby at Frey Ranch. Um, other than that, one. you know, not too many people who are, on, well, and of course, I guess Alan counts in a way, cause he just, <laughs> you know, he does, Hodge he Hodge does speak Alan. farmer. Yeah. He speaks farmer. <laughs> right, so yeah. we'll, we'll throw him in there. So we got three. And, um, but for the most part, it, it really is, you know, they might know where they get their grain and they might know but but it's, there is that disconnect for sure. And it made me think about a, a conversation I was having recently with uh, Lisa Wicker, mm. who I know is involved in, in the project early on, and especially with George Washington's Mount Vernon distillery and, and Widow Jane as well, I should say, I guess. And she was talking about how you have to treat heirloom corn differently as a distiller. And um, in the context that she was talking, just to add that in, uh, she was talking about kind of a crafty note that some people get in, particularly in bourbons that are either too young or um, something where basically what's happened is the distiller has taken the corn that's not yellow dent number two, and they've cooked it too high, too fast. The corn mm. oils come out and the corn oils burn and you just can't get that taste out. And that stays no matter how long. It's not about it being too young. It's what happened right at the beginning of the process. Um, so uh, I guess in, you know, Lori and your role as a communicator and, and Bob is your role as the farmer, how do you work with distillers to communicate how you should treat different varieties of corn that they're dealing with? Um, it's a tough, I'm not a distiller, right? So, um, I can't necessarily explain to but neither one not, of us I'm is not, I'm not either. It's okay. <laughs> no, no, neither one. Okay, that's what it is. What he said. <laughs> Sorry. So yeah, neither of us are distillers. Um, I know just enough to be dangerous, basically. Um, but you know, Lisa is. I mean, she's a guru. That woman. She knows so much about working with these things, mostly because she's not afraid to work with them. Um, trial and error, and um, you know research and and understanding that there were different ways that people ran their stills and operated their you know um mashtons and and it's good to know the history and know the grain and the unfortunate thing about most distillers now is they're all taught to distill um in the modern bourbon school and you know given instructions on how to distill, you know, the way that I guess most of us are used to <laughs> drinking. Well, the whiskey that's made today is all kind of made in a similar fashion, I guess, is the point I'm trying to make. Um, and it's not the way whiskey used to be made. And the way use whiskey used to be made, the basic raw material was different than what we use today. And so when you're trying to return to those old raw materials, you almost kind of want to try returning to those old processes as well. And so most of the distillers that I work with have that understanding just to begin, which is good. Um, I mean, especially at Mount Vernon, like you mentioned, that was just super fun <laughs> because they're all set up to work with 
um, heirloom grain there. Um, those old pot stills and the old processes and everything else. And the people that work there are so well-versed in all these things. You don't need to tell them much. Um, but I think the issue is um, with communication. It's not so much the process of distilling it as it is the process of purchasing it and the understanding of what's involved with growing it. So, you know, distillers, I like, <laughs> I often say they have this kind of um, modern Amazon ideal of how grain is supposed to come to them. You order mm -hmm. it and within a couple of days, it shows up at your door in beautifully wrapped packages and, you know, clean and beautiful and, you know, exactly the way that they want it. Well, when you're working with a farmer who doesn't understand that that's the way you want it, they will fail you every time. If you, if they don't understand what the distiller's concept of good grain is, then they can't possibly provide it for them. So I hear a lot of the time, you know, a distiller will, will say something like, oh, this grain is dirty or this grain is... um you know, there's, there's stuff in here there. I'm not happy with this grain. And you have to explain to them, you need to be able to explain to the farmer what it is that you need and what it is that you want. They need to understand that grain needs to be cleaned. Grain needs to be dried. You need to have a certain moisture content. You need to um, make sure that it's maintained. There needs to be storage. Where is this grain going to be kept? Well, you know, in the meantime, because farmers um, in today's day and age are not set up to store grain. Uh, they grow grain and it goes off to the elevator immediately. And, um, you know, you harvest, load it into trucks and ship it out. And then you get your check from the elevator and your grain's gone. And you never have to worry about it again. This is modern convenience of the commodity grain market. But with a distiller, that ain't going to be the case. <laughs> you have to have a place to keep it. You have to have a place to keep it dry and safe. And before it gets shipped to the distiller, it needs to be cleaned very well. Um, and the, the farmer needs to understand what that means, uh, how clean it needs to be, how it's going to be shipped. Is it going to be in super sacks? Is it going to be in bags? Is it going to be in a tractor trailer? Is it going to, you know, how long is, um, obviously there's a lot of balls in the air. <laughs> Let's put it that way. Sure. And so um, if you're just dealing with a grain broker, uh, and you're just calling them up and saying, I need X number of pounds of rye, they're going to ship you whatever they got. Um, and you can try and be specific with them, but grain brokers keep large quantities of grain on hand, ready to ship out. And that grain could be coming from anywhere. There is no provenance to any of that grain. It goes into the bin, regardless of whether it's from Canada, Germany, Sweden, you know, Ukraine, wherever it's coming from, it's all going into the same bin. I call it hamburger grain because <laughs> it's just kind of, you know, there's there's nothing yeah. particularly interesting about it. So distillers just, you know, they say, I get my grain from so-and-so, but it's like, do you? Or are you just getting bulk grain? You know, you don't quite know what it is, but hey, it's clean and it's shipped to you in nice bags. So, I mean... I feel like I'm rambling now, but I, I'm just trying to explain that that's the disconnect, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. And it makes it's sense. like going between Walmart and your local roadside stand. Right, right. It's a good comparison, yeah. yeah. 
you know, there, I get that there's kind of a time and place if you want to go it, to use that metaphor to uh, go to the Walmart, if you need something specific or you just need something quick, easy to use. Um, and also yeah. I know we keep in the reality that once you reach a certain size, there might not be a, a farmer who can supply from just one farm. There are very few well, that they can at, 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 you know, at a certain volume, of course. Yeah. Uh, but farmers can grow with the distillery. And that's kind of where we try and promote that sort of activity. So, you know, Bob is not going to be able to supply everybody with rose and rye when a distillery wants to buy it. What we've set up is he's the grain supplier, the seed supplier. And if you're a distillery that wants to um, distill rosin and grow the amount of rosin you'll be distilling, you need to find your own farmer that you can grow with, preferably local to you, keeping down your shipping costs and all the other things. And then, you know, we help that farmer understand what's expected of them. Um, and then they grow as the distillery grows. And there's quite a few examples of this in Pennsylvania now um, that started with Bob's grain, but are now using their own seed stock and growing their own grain and expanding the acreage that they've planted every year so that they can have more and more and more and grow the amount of rosin rye that they're distilling. And they can do that on their own terms in their own locality. Does that make sense? Good. And that would ideally, uh, probably in practice too, but ideally that's going to add more of the terroir, the provenance of that area. So you get the core of the rosin plus mm -hmm. some of the um, the sense of place that goes Absolutely. with it. Absolutely. And then, you, you know, the farmers, this is the whole purpose uh, here is, you know, the farmer might have um, 50 acres that belongs to him or her, right? That's their acreage. But then as the distiller has more need for more grain, they can begin to rent other property, buy other property, expand their farms, as opposed to continuing to sell off parcels of it to, you know, keep their grandparents' land. <laughs> they can keep it and make money on it and have a business partner in the distillery you know, and go from there. So a lot of opportunity here. And uh, Bob, your family farm was originally a dairy farm before adding on and converting to grain farming. Uh, is that the, actually, I should say, is that the right term? I feel like that's not the right term. Grain growing. Grain farming. Yeah. Grain farming? Okay. I don't know why it's, it sounded weird coming out of my mouth. I was like, that, that doesn't sound right, but okay. Um, <laughs> But uh, when I guess uh, going back to the farming aspect of it, what was the moment where uh, the farm started to grow grains in addition to uh, to livestock or or dairy? I should say. Well, like, what was the impetus for um, the change? My parents bought the farm in 1960, and they had a they started dairying then. And it's been now about 13 years since we've quit dairy and we, we still have beef and, and the grain farming. Oh yeah. As the demand grows for the grain, the, the cattle are getting less. Mm. And he's expanding the acreage that he uses. So and that, that was my next question. Yeah. Yeah. 
I'm renting farms and I've got other farmers helping me to grow. So what's your, let's say if you've got, uh, I think you have something like 175 acres right now. I, I farm around 400 acres. 400. Okay. So my numbers were, were probably old numbers then. Uh, I guess I don't I know you can't necessarily tell the future on this, but what do you feel like is your maximum growth area for what you want to achieve? I'll keep growing as long as the demand's there. I'll, I'll find land somewhere to grow it on. Hmm. Awesome. So, so I want to throw back to, uh, this is something that came up on, on an episode of distillers talk. Uh, I use that podcast frequently for research because Alan and I think a lot alike and we've got, yeah, you know, <laughs> he'll, he'll ask those kinds of questions that I asked too. So, um, he, Obviously, we're talking about rose and rye at the time specifically, but I think it applies to uh, the larger grain sphere. So he made a point that at a certain point, you can't save every grain. Mm -hmm. You know, there are plenty of heirloom grains of corn, rye, wheat, what have you, that uh, for one reason or another, um, you can't save. But then you have ones like rosin where you can't. Uh, now his argument was that when choosing which ones to save, once you get past the simple viability, like, can this even be grown? Uh, you should tend more towards those that have either culinary or agricultural value, as opposed to simply reviving a grain for the sake of reviving it. Um, and I, I thought it was a, a good point, interesting point. Um, but one on which I have zero knowledge. So I wanted to throw it to both of you to get your opinions on that point. Uh, you mean why choose specific grains? Yeah. Like why choose specific grains? And, and if, you know, when you get to a point where if you had to choose between a grain, what would lead you to choose one over the other? This month's impact spotlight is on nickname founded by Annabelle Thomas Nicknean has a pioneering approach to spirit making, putting innovation and sustainability at the forefront. Through Nicknean, Annabelle seeks to change the way the world thinks about whiskey from Scotland and to create a whiskey which could exist in harmony with our planet and its inhabitants. Nicknean has created a spirit with exceptional body and sweetness, showcasing their smooth and elegant house style. This is achieved through a combination of sourcing high-quality organic Scottish barley, gentle fermentation, and distillation processes, and maturation in a combination of three carefully selected cask types. Ex-American whiskey casks, STR, shaved, toasted, and recharred casks that held red wine, and a small amount of Oloroso sherry casks. The result is flavors of lemon sherbet, juicy stone fruits, and spiced rye bread. This whiskey is set to disrupt the industry through Nicknean's commitment to sustainability and creative approach to distilling. With an uncompromising focus, the small team of eco-conscious drinks fanatics also dedicate 10% of their spirit production to trialing different yeasts, not commonly found, in whiskey distilling, all on their journey to seek out and find new flavors in their whiskey making. If you're a longtime listener, you know how interested I am in whiskeys and distilleries like this, and how excited I am that Impex is now bringing it stateside. Annabelle will be visiting Chicago for Whiskey and Barrel Night on October 25th, 
and will be hosting special masterclasses featuring the key components of Nignin, along with their core organic single malts. These tastings will also include a sneak peek of Quiet Rebels Gordon. Only 630 bottles of the special one-time-only release will be coming to the States, so it's a release and an event you won't want to miss. Nignin Organic Single Malt is currently on its way to specialty retailers across the U.S. For more information and questions on where to buy, please contact the Impex Beverages office at office at impexbev.com and follow on social media to never miss a release. The Whiskering Podcast is proudly sponsored by Impex Beverages. Well, um, marketability, first of all, um, just like whiskey, you know, you, you need to be able to sell this stuff. Um, farmers are businessmen, first and foremost. They're not going to do something that's not going to make them money. Um, and so for me to pitch an idea to someone and say, I want you to grow this grain, I better have a good reason <laughs> to do it. Uh, otherwise, they're not going to get on board. Um, now, you know, you've explained that I study the history of rye whiskey. Well, that's helpful when I'm trying to pitch an idea for a grain. If I've researched a specific grain that I know was successfully used in making rye whiskey in Pennsylvania, because again, I'm focused on Pennsylvania, um, then I can use that. I can say, look, I know this specific grain was used in this era. And if you can connect it to something like, you know, the whiskey rebellion, or if you can attach it to something like, I don't know, um, like George Washington's a great one. Everybody knows him. <laughs> so, you know, having Mount Vernon distill rose and rye was purposeful. You know, we, we want people to be able to say, that's awesome. That that's really something special there. And so the story and the marketing need to fit with that grain. And, you know, Alan's no dope. He's not going to use anything that isn't going to translate into dollars on the back end. You have to make sure that the grain you're choosing has a reason for being. You know, um, you can talk about color all day, but if it doesn't taste good, you know, your purple corn or whatever ain't gonna be worth anything. You need to be able to distill it. You need to be able to say this is better than, people need to be able to taste it and recognize that it's better. Um, yeah, I mean, those first couple of years of working with Rosen was, that was traumatic. I wasn't sure, like, is this actually going to be good? Um, This is a lot of my life I'm putting into this. Is this going to be worthwhile? And then to taste it and go, God, oh, thank God. <laughs> That's, yeah, that was, that was important. There are several other grains that I know have marketability um, that I'll be attempting to work with as well. Um, all have connections to Pennsylvania and to distilling, but you know, that's, that requires me actually starting um, from scratch again. And that will happen, but we need to find, uh, Rosen right now is basically our anchor grain for rye. I know that it's good. I know that it's, um, that it works, but we need to be able to translate that into um, more marketability and make it viable in the, for the long term. Because, you know, it's fun. I don't play with grain. You know what I mean? That this isn't like, we're not just <laughs> trying our hand at this. You know what I mean? Um, everything that we do is very methodical and we're making sure that everything, everything we do is with purpose. And so working with larger and larger distilleries going forward, making sure that um, the grain stays in Pennsylvania for the time being, 
um, just to make sure that the Pennsylvania farmers are the ones that benefit from it. But to have these whiskeys finally come of age, we're finally going to have bottled and bond Rosen Rye whiskey next year. That's pretty awesome. epic. Yeah, so, that's awesome. And we need to be able to have people taste it and say that exact thing. That's awesome. <laughs> like, yeah. And so it's all steps. You know what I mean? But Alan's right. You you can't. Rosen was connected to Michter's, right? Mm-hmm. Rosen was connected to um to Dick Stoll. Dick Stoll was the first person to ever be able to distill it again. This, he worked with it before. He knew it was great. You know, mm-hmm. there aren't many people out there that have worked with heirloom grains before Prohibition. <laughs> I mean, there's none. Uh, there's there's nobody that can say for sure that one is going to work better than another. So yeah, it's it, it's daunting the task of of starting a new heirloom varietal. Um it's not for the faint of heart, I'll tell you that. <laughs> but it's worthwhile. It is. And as you as you alluded to, you now have what I would consider it's a very successful path at least. Mm-hmm. Because you've done it with a rosin and it's continuing to grow and reach other distilleries, other farms. You yeah, there's that path forward that you can at least start with mm-hmm. and alter as you need. But hopefully the next grain that you choose won't be as daunting only because you've done it once. Mm-hmm. So, you know. Well, it's everything else that goes along again. with it too. You need yeah. to establish a grain supply chain. And that's where we're at now, attempting to establish a way to not just grow the grain, but get it to multiple um, distillers that want it. Yeah, the grain supply chain, that's that's the hitch in the giddy up here. We gotta, we gotta establish that and, um, and get that moving. This is something that you also just mentioned, Laura, that people are, actually it's been mentioned throughout this episode that distillers are mainly trained on one on commodity grain. They're also mainly mm-hmm. trained on bourbon in the U.S. Uh, and while, of course, we're generalizing with this, there are exceptions. It's a pretty solid generalization. And um, another quote that I wanted to just pull off of Distiller's talk that um, was from you that I thought was really appropriate and really telling is uh, we're talking about the focus on bourbon when looking at American whiskey history. And he said, um, with all due respect to uh, Mike Veach and Fred Minnick, both great, have done great work on history of American whiskey. Their focus is on bourbon. To look at everything through the lens of bourbon is to miss another 200 years of history. Mm -hmm. And then the following point being, you can't understand Kentucky distilling without Pennsylvania distilling. Right. Um, So I wanted to to, uh, revisit that because... I mean, historically, it's absolutely true. You go to Pennsylvania before, went to Kentucky, just geographically moving west. So, and a lot of the traditions that we now think of as associated with Kentucky came from Pennsylvania or through Pennsylvania, right. certainly. Distillers. So, <laughs> distillers, yeah. yeah. Scots Irish and all the groups therein that that came over with stills from Europe, they're coming probably through Pennsylvania, probably through Pittsburgh, for that matter, or what is now Pittsburgh. All along the mountain range, basically. All in mountain range, exactly. So I know that um, you know some other whiskey writers in recent, even in the past year, let's say, have come out with books focusing more on rye. So um, Clay Risen 
came out with a book on American Rye earlier this year. And a couple of people are writing more about this. But as you said, the focus is still mainly on bourbon. Mm -hmm. Now, in one of the roles in which I know you best is from um, your your historical posts on Facebook uh, and other publications talking about, oh, you know, I found this piece of this newspaper clipping or this ad from uh, 200 years ago sometimes. Um, It amazes me some of the things that pop up on, on my feed that I'm like, how did she find this? Uh, and, <laughs> and so when you're, when you're looking at this, uh, I guess my first question is just what is your process look like for looking at it and finding a piece of evidence like that? Right. And, well, I mean, you have to understand I've been doing this for about a decade. Um, I've only been on Facebook for a year, uh, posting this stuff. Um, I have filing cabinets upstairs. I'm very old school. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm a trained artist, so I work visually and with my hands. So I need the physicality of the paper in the folders. And so I've got tonnage. Um, When I first started researching Pennsylvania rye, really, it was the nonprofit that inspired it. Um, I wanted, yes, I understood whiskey and I'm such a geek when it comes to anything. When I want to, you know, when I dig into it, I really want to dig into it and Every single time you start looking at something, there's another rabbit hole and you need to pursue that. Um, I found myself getting a little confused about a decade ago when I was doing my research. And I said, you know what, I'm doing this. I'm going about this all wrong. Um, I can't continue to read what everybody else has written. Um, I need to start from scratch. So what I determined to do um, was to really start studying each individual distillery. Um, that existed in Pennsylvania. And there were hundreds of them um, after the Civil War. And the reason that I focused on after the Civil War is because that's when there were records. Uh, There weren't really any tax records and things before then. So there's lots of anecdotes um, that mention distillers that existed before then, but there were thousands. There's no way I was going to pin all those down. So I put my focus on um, post-Civil War and I began to study each individual family and each individual owner and there were hundreds. So I've studied individually and written about about 200 um, individual distilleries that existed and functioned here in Pennsylvania. In doing so, I came across tonnage <laughs> of random bits of information, as you would if you're studying families and you're looking at their ancestry and you're looking at, you know, um, how they got started, when they got started, where they were all from, what ships they came in on, all these things you get this real close personal connection to all these families and realizing that, you know, they had to hire their own distillers and where those distillers come from. How did they work? Who were their customers? Um, Who were they selling to? All of those eccentricities, all these little pieces of the puzzle, all of them interest me. So I dove into everything. I was looking at everything. And then, you know, when I was pregnant with my kids and, um, home a lot. (laughs) I had a lot more time to really dig and, and start writing. And so, yeah, I have immense amounts of this information, random little tidbits that you'd come across that you're just kind of like, what in the world is that? And I'd set it aside. And that's where the Facebook page came from, where I was kind of like, um, I have all this information about Pennsylvania distilleries, but you'd notice that the stuff that I post about online is not about 
necessarily Pennsylvania whiskey. Um, It's random info that came up along the way. So I'd find lots of other things. Um, The rabbit holes basically are what I write about and uh, endlessly interesting to me. There's, there's so much. And the thing that drives me crazy is that in all this research and all the things that I've found, so much of it is completely contrary to everything that has been written about American whiskey. Um, I think coming at it from an earlier perspective kind of makes everything else seem a bit askew and market driven. Mm-hmm. And um, when you look at why all of these things began, um, I, I, I don't know if you can maybe focus me in on like a specific topic. Maybe I can help you more because I think <laughs> there's so much information. No, uh, I, I, know, I know the feeling. I, I can see, <laughs> obviously this is an audio only podcast, but uh, you know, we record a video and I can see just all the wheels turning and I can, you know, all the ways you want to go on that. And Right. Which is great because that means there's passion there and there's real drive and and you know you know what you're talking about. At, in the simplest yeah. terms, you know what you're talking about. And I think what I'm thinking about is two things, which is always the case with me. Uh first <laughs> one being I I you know, I too have full respect for for these other whiskey historians and whiskey histories. But to me it also seems to strain credulity to mm-hmm. say that in researching the history of bourbon, let's say the history of corn based whiskey, that even if they were focused solely on Kentucky and what is what is today, Kentucky, that they wouldn't also come across the history of rye mm-hmm. and other grains that may have been distilled. And it makes me wonder why, you know, was it just missing? Did they just miss it? Was it no. a conscious choice? <laughs> you know, so no, it was definitely more of a Sophie's Choice situation. Like you have to understand that um, rye uh, was rye was basically the thing that everybody wanted. It was um, never overproduced in the way that bourbon was. Um, there's a lot of reasons for that, but there it was always managed. Um, and insular, uh, Pennsylvania and Maryland kind of kept to themselves. They were never bought out by the Whiskey Trust. Um, they maintained their integrity. Um, and the thing that killed them was prohibition. Um, and then who survived prohibition? The folks that were owned um, and controlled by larger corporations that were able to maintain their integrity uh, through th- over those 13 years um, by doing lots of other things, <laughs> manipulating the system. Um, and they were able to survive and come out on the other end. Now, all of these individually owned distilleries obviously could not do that. They didn't have this corporate umbrella that protected them. And so they all kind of lost their shirts. Um, and that's not to say they lost their shirts. It's just that the next generation of wealthy young men found other business and moved on because nobody thought, you know, prohibitions here, it's part of the constitution it ain't going anywhere we need to move on and they did and so when prohibition was over there was nobody to go all right everybody come back together let's wrangle you all <laughs> um there were a few and that was shenley um national distillers owned um the um old overholt and large and those were you know 
they were producing during prohibition so they were able to bring them back but they were no longer pennsylvania owned institutions anymore you know so there's um a lot of change that took place after prohibition and so when we think of rye uh we tend to think of rye in its association with bourbon through national distillers and through shenley and um seagrams and hiram walker and all you know we we think of rye in a very different context and bourbon we all think of in a modern context we can't help but do that because bourbon didn't have this clout until you know 1964 actually 1960 but you know 1964 they they um uh passed yeah, the, the national spirit yeah exactly right um yeah yeah what did they it's not the national spirit it was the uh, uh the product native- no, product it, solely of the U.S. and thank you. Yes, yeah. a, a product solely made by the United States, and and that didn't happen until 1964, not really that long ago. And so yeah. all of our context around bourbon is very recent. Um, very, you know, we the bourbon that we're drinking today tastes nothing like the bourbon that people were drinking in the 60s and 70s when that law was passed. And that whiskey was nothing like the whiskey that was made in the 1930s. And that whiskey was very different than the whiskey that was made in the 1890s. So, you know, understanding that all of these different things existed and understanding that we think of rye in association with bourbon. Mm -hmm. I don't think of rye that way. (laughs) I think of rye in its original context. So, you know, when I'm talking to people about rye, it's very difficult because I can't help them understand what I know to be true Mm -hmm. um, without all the context. So I don't know if, that made a lot of sense. <laughs> um, I, I just think that, you know, when you're writing about bourbon, I, the way I look at it is it's like a historian who is writing a book about World War II and they just study World War II and they never bring up the context of World War I and they never bring up the context of the Revolutionary War. You know, like it, there's so much more history before that. You can't have modern history without the older history and there is no one really that i've read that has delved into rye in any way that would satisfy my interest level i you know i i like the the thing i can't do is i I don't do modern so i'm not (laughs) not real good on um the modern history of rye like that's not really my my purview (laughs) i'm more like right up into the the 1950s and 60s and that's where i lose interest so, I mean, it, this sounds, I mean, a little, I guess it's fitting for, for rye for sure. But I mean, that's also when a lot of America seemed to kind of lose interest in rye, unfortunately. And uh, like, I mean, that's exactly when bourbon but there's a lot of reason for that. that. Yeah. yeah. I mean, whiskey is a whole, then this is a whole other episode to go into, which is just the whiskey bust and fifties and sixties and the glut. Um, but with the with all the research that you've done already and and are continuing to do, uh, can we expect a a book or a publication in the future? The book is written; it's there. Um, it just the, the problem with anybody like myself um, is that because I'm always discovering something new, um, mm. I oftentimes need to go back and rethink something. And so I had this conversation actually with Chet Zoller. Um, I don't know if you've ever had a chance to talk to him. What an amazing gentleman. Um, he wrote, uh, what's it called? Bourbon. Oh, I've got his book around here somewhere. Bourbon in Kentucky is his book. 
Um, and it's phenomenal. It's a listing of almost every single distillery that existed in Kentucky. And it's the depth of information is amazing. And I'm looking at it and I'm going, this is my book. This is basically what I did for Pennsylvania. Only he's done it for Kentucky. And how amazing, you know? And so I'm sitting there talking on the phone with him and we have the exact same kind of research methods. And he gave me a great piece of advice. He's like, you're never going to get it right. Like it's, it's always going to be evolving. And he's like, I'm on my, what do you say? Sixth or seventh um, rewrite of his book. And he's like, just, just do it. Just get it out there. So I think I'm in the process of, of doing that and getting everything kind of fit together in a way that, that would make sense to a reader. <laughs> yeah, so. I'll, I'll second him on in a uh, a hearsay kind of way, if you will, which is uh, I got to interview Stephen Van Eiken. Uh, he's a, a originally a Belgian writer, but he writes on Japanese whiskey. And he was facing kind of the same thing when he came out with his book, uh, Whiskey Rising, where there were just so many new distilleries popping up in Japan that at a certain point, he just had to say, all right, I got to stop at this point in 2017. And then uh, just a few months ago, I think the second edition came out with a couple of new distilleries that have come online since then. So uh, that seems to be kind of the case. And granted, in one case, you're dealing with new distilleries that are coming online. In your case, you're dealing with new distilleries and new facts that you're finding out. But at the end of the day, you're still, I, I guess you, you, you probably do have to kind of just set a point where you're like, okay, as of this date, right. Right. <laughs> this is what we know. And of course, there will be future editions that include more addendums and all of this. Uh, you have to keep on. I'm from, like, I'm a lapsed academic. So okay. um, I'm always thinking like, okay, what's the paper that could be written? And then the four or five papers that eventually get turned into a thesis or a book. And because that's <laughs> what most of them are. They're, they're collections of essays that are around a central topic rather than one three or 400 page uh, thing. So I'm, I'm also very curious about your process because I'm, I've been thinking about Shenley in particular. Yes. And I've been fascinated by them mainly because there really isn't a, a history of them. You know, there, yes. there's some of their competitors. I mean, Seagram's you get glimpses of through biographies of the secret family mm-hmm. um, and occasional writings about the company anything that was national distillers and then Diageo, you get company histories of those, but for whatever reason, Shenley is kind of one of the, one of those massive companies that shepherded whiskey for better or worse for a long they're time. They're the same. Yeah. They're this, they're, they're basically existing in the same realm as Rye uh, where yeah. they were shut out. Um, Shenley is often used as the bad guy by bourbon mm-hmm. writers um, they were the ones who did all the overproduction production. They were the ones that all of that is nonsense. It, it's so much of that is wrapped up in um, what the oh, what's the word I'm looking for? What the um, the story is, you know, like they're they're telling a story and Shenley interrupts that story. And, you know, if they actually told the real story behind it, it would not make them look as great so it's the same thing with rye like you can't really tell the story of rye without making bourbon look bad and who wants to do that bourbon is doing so well and there's so much you know money being made that no one wants to necessarily do that and 
I don't care because nobody's paying me to, you know, say one thing one way or another. I like being able to talk about the history for what it was. So, you know, I'd like to be able to tell the story of Shenley. I, I have immense amounts of research that I've done on, on Shenley alone and all their connections and that spider web of, you know, how that came to be. But they're a new company, man. They're not, there's an original Shenley distillery in Pennsylvania that had nothing to do with Lewis Rosensteel. And then when he came along, it was a whole nother ball of wax. So it's, for me, it's, it's a lot more interesting, um, the original dynamics and how that all changed over time. I'm sorry, I'm rambling again. (laughs) On this podcast, I I like letting my guests talk because that's, that's when you get the most interesting information is when someone taps into that passion point and um, yeah, that. So I don't consider rambling at all. I consider it, wow, this is a lot of information and that's a lot of things that I need to follow up on because now I'm interested. So, you know, I mentioned I just came back from the KBF, um, but while I was there, we got to visit the uh, Oscar Getz Whiskey Museum and uh, they, I didn't know they had these, they had old bottles for sale. So I picked up, among others, a couple of bottles of old Shenley. Oh, very cool. Um, Because I, yeah, I really do not know much about them but i know the only like the most that i've read would probably be uh the chapter in uh, looking at the book um buffalo barrels and bourbon by um paul packold wrote a couple years ago um he had a chapter on lewis rosensteel and that's about as much as i knew about shenley and then i came across a decanter on like someone was selling it on facebook um uh, a decanter for rosensteel's 75th birthday that was made with three countries of uh, of whiskey that were produced by Shenley. You know, right. It's like 60% Canadian, 20 Kentucky, 20 um, Scotch, and with a, with a light peated Scotch, not too heavy. And it was unlike any whiskey I'd ever tasted before because it was meant to be something no one had tasted before. And so that kind of kickstarted this interest. And um, I found, just as a little preview, I found that the New York Public Library has a lot of Shenley's corporate annual reports and mm-hmm. tax records. So I need to set some time aside to go in and look and, and do some of this research because uh, it's it's fun. It's well, interesting. Say, and it's uh, a story that needs uh, to be told. Yeah, oh, uh, Scott, it really does. It really does need to be told. Um, the yeah. most interesting thing, just to get you set on you know possibilities of where to go, is yeah. that Shenley, when it was first, when Rosensteel um, first got involved with the company, um, they had, well, he was trying to talk to his partners about getting a concentration warehouse license. And he wanted it really badly for his new plant in Shenley, which mm. you know existed since I think it was 1892. There was a distillery there. But he wanted to make his location work. Well, he didn't get it. And his partners bailed. And what he ended up doing was securing a concentration warehouse uh, license that was obtained by the folks at, uh, what is it, Um, Joseph Finch. And Joseph Finch was in Pittsburgh, not in Shenley. And most people, bottle collectors and things, they associate uh, Joseph Finch with Shenley. And this is why, because what he did was he ended up securing the license 
for the distillery in Pittsburgh. Once he got it, he relocated that license to his own plant in Shenley. At the time, Joseph Finch made Golden Wedding and was the most phenomenal distillery. It was had more history than you could shake a stick at. It's actually my favorite distillery in all of Pennsylvania history was Joseph Finch in Pittsburgh. But he closed that place down. Broke my heart, <laughs> you know, when I found this out. But he closed it down, basically shuttered it and let it rot and moved all of its value down to his own distillery. And once he established that Joseph Finch slash Shenley was his company and he owned the rights to that um, concentration warehouse, he began to stockpile whiskey and he owned the Golden Wedding and he owned, um, you know, Shenley brand name. And for five years, he owned nothing else. And he built his legacy upon that, that um, the backbone that was Joseph Finch. He didn't come to own um, George T. Stagg until five years after he he purchased jo, um, Joseph Finch. So all of that is what built him. That's what made him. That's how he became a big player, all of because of Joseph Finch. And no one talks about that because we all associate Shenley with all of these newer companies and all of, you know, with Kentucky and, and, um, and other larger brands. But yeah, he needed Joseph Finch to make his legacy. So that needs to be told more, I think. And that will help people understand a little bit more about, you know, why rye is such an important part of the conversation that people need to be having. I'm in favor of anything that brings more stories to light and just more knowledge, more knowledge, the better. Absolutely. <laughs> this is the whiskey culture nowadays. We want to know more. We want to know everything from where the grain is from, from the history of it. And especially, I think, because it is so intertwined, the history of yes. whiskey, of rye in particular, but let's say whiskey generally with the history of the U.S. and it's a story that needs to be explored more. We're a hundred years past prohibition. Got to get past it a little bit in the reading realm as well, <laughs> in the writing realm. So with that, I mean, thank you both. This has been a wonderful conversation. Lots of ideas coming out of it. Lots of hopefully, uh, you know, people looking at really taking a look at where your grains are coming from, thinking about talking to your farmers, connecting with them, knowing where your food comes from, not even just the whiskey grains, although I know you want to focus on that, but where your food <laughs> grain is coming from, where, where you can find those connections and going to the local market instead of Walmart once in a while. They're not a sponsor. They're not listening. I'm not worried about offending them. So totally <laughs> fine. Support the farmer's market instead. So with that, um, hold on with me for a second after recording both of you, but uh, Laura, Bob, thank you both so much for coming on to talk about these projects, what you're doing. Uh, as I said, there'll be links in the show notes to all of this. And please do visit. Please do read uh, what Laura's been writing. Please do try what Bob has been growing. And with that, we'll sign off and I'll see you all next week. Thanks for listening. Hey folks, thanks for listening to another episode of the Whiskey Ring Podcast. If you like what you hear, please go ahead and click that subscribe, follow, or like button. Leave a rating review on your podcast app of choice and let me know what you want to hear. You can reach out to me through the podcast apps or email me at david at whiskeymywedderingcom with any suggestions or ideas for new show guests. You can also support the podcast at patreon.com slash whiskeyinmywedderingring. That's whiskey with an E for as little as a dollar a month. $5 a month gets you access to bonus content, including our soon to resume under the influencer series and $25 a month means you join the Barrel Share Club. Each month, Barrel Share Club members get to try products sent to me for review, 
bottles from my own collection, and sometimes bottles that I just pick up because they're fun or interesting. Right now, only five spots remain in the Barrel Share Club, so grab your place today. Finally, please follow on Instagram. You can follow me at WhiskeyMyWeddingRing or at WhiskeyRingPodcast. You can follow me on Twitter at WhiskeyRing. You can follow on Facebook at WhiskeyMyWeddingRing or join the Facebook group, the Whiskey Ringers group. And I hope to see you there. Cheers. Thank you for the support and see you next time.